You're listening to the Grassroots Church Podcast. We're a Jesus-centered community in Thunder Bay, Ontario. You can learn how to participate more by going to our website at grassroots.church. Thank you this morning for joining us. Uh, There's been a few things that were happening this weekend that I thought I would just kind of start with and bring your attention to. This was happening at our house. We had an Evolving Faith Conference, which uh, I think we had 11 or 12 13 different women that came over, and they watched a virtual conference taking place down in Minneapolis uh, this weekend. And so uh, if you're part of that, you knew that it was a great time of uh, encouragement, or hopefully it was, being challenged to think in new ways. Um, so that was really exciting. That happened Friday night and Saturday. And then yesterday, we took some of the grassroots youth group up Lost Mountain, and uh, Matt kind of provided a sermon on the mount, and it was really lovely. We had a great time. Uh, there's, a, there's a few new faces there as well and a couple old favorites. <laughs> so we had a good time there. Uh, so that was happening yesterday. Our next gig event is November 1st. And uh, we will have details about what's coming down the pipe on that. Um, I wanted to talk this morning before I begin just about Roots and Shoots. Last week I talked about home groups. By the way, if you haven't signed up for home groups, they're starting this week. I know that was already announced, but I just want to reinforce that. Um, They are starting this week, so sign up at the back. Uh, We've got a couple of folks that uh, are in each group so far, which is exciting, but we could always use more. Um, But I do want to turn our attention just for a few minutes to um, Roots and Shoots. And this, so this is our Sunday school program here at Grassroots, and a couple weeks ago, um, the leadership of the Roots and Shoes program uh, got together to discuss kind of where things are going and how we can continue to minister to our kids in a way that reflects um, the heartfelt convictions that we as a church community um, believe regarding children, that they are absolutely integral to the overall ministry of the Grassroots um, Church. Uh, they are not um, an afterthought or some sort of, you know, um, secondary, of, of secondary importance to us. They are central to who we are as a community. And we want all of us as a church, and especially if you're a parent this morning, um, you know, you've entrusted your child to our care, and so we appreciate that. But we want you to understand just how central uh, these children are to our ministry. And so um, I, I guess the reason is because they were central to Jesus, Children were central to Jesus. He used children as an object lesson to show his followers what the kingdom of God looked like. And so I think that's a pretty astounding thing. And so Jesus placed high um, importance on children and uh, said, listen, this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what faith looks like. And so we have so much to learn from children. We don't ever want to see it as some sort of secondary or, uh, you know, additional ministry. It is key to who we are. And so on that note, uh, we discuss his leadership we want the children in our Sunday school program to be learning the same kinds of things that we're learning at the, at the front on a Sunday morning as well. Um, if you grew up in Sunday school, uh, you will no doubt have memories of learning all of the Bible stories. Noah, and David and Goliath, and... Jonah and the whale, all the different Bible stories, you know, and then you also knew, you also learned Jesus as a Bible story. And the problem with that, I mean, every curriculum sort of does this. Every curriculum that we come across kind of is like, oh, we're going to start at the beginning, we're just going to go through the Bible, and we're going to talk, teach these kids all these Bible stories. And that's great. That's, there's lots to be said about that. There's, there's lots to be um, promoted about that. But what we're teaching here at Grassroots is that Jesus is actually at the center of everything. Jesus is at the center of how we understand God. Jesus is at the center of how we read the Bible. 
Jesus is at the center of how we understand our role in this world to be. And so we want our kids, we want that to be reflected in what we're teaching our children as well. And so Jesus isn't just another Bible story. Jesus is the story, right? Jesus is the story that everything else in the Bible eventually somehow one way or another points to. And we want that reflected. And so what we did was we asked, uh, as, a, as a group of leaders, and specifically Angela came up with this, um, she was kind of tasked with coming up with a statement um, that we can read at the beginning of our Sunday school services on sort of an ongoing basis. In fact, I think we're going to probably post this on the wall. But this is to help frame whatever lesson we're going to give in our Roots and Shoots program. Um, this is going to help frame that lesson, to frame sort of like, here's why we're doing this. Here's why we're learning about this story, because it has something to do with Jesus, because everything should point to Jesus. So I want to read that statement this morning to all of us, uh, because I think it's beautiful. And then I just want us to, to know that this is what we're doing. This is what we're feeding your kids on Sunday mornings. Um, so here it is. It says, each week in Roots and Shoots, we have the awesome opportunity to learn about Jesus through the Bible. A long time ago, God wanted his people who loved him to write down his story. We call this great story the Bible. It's filled with history and adventure stories, poems and songs, sadness and happiness, children and grown-ups, heroes, and also many people who made big mistakes. All the stories before Jesus was born pointed the way to him. When we look at Jesus, we can see just what God, his Father, is like and how much he loves each one of us. Jesus is the answer to all our questions about what God is like. He is love. He is peace. He makes all things right. Amen? Cool. Everyone down with that? Good. Good. I love that you guys like that. I love that you're nodding. That's excellent. Um, And we could spend a whole lot of time looking at this, but the gist is we want kids to know the Bible isn't just a book of fascinating stories. Though, of course, it's certainly that. But it's ultimately there to point us to Jesus so that we can understand who God is. Um, And so this is what we're trying to incorporate sort of into the regular liturgy of our Sunday morning services, our Roots and Shoots program. And I hope you understand just how much we love and value your kids and and how much we appreciate the fact that you entrust your children to our, um, our Sunday school program each week as well. So... Let's shift gears a little bit. Um, Let's now start talking about Galatians. Uh, So we began last week, this series, uh, multi-week series we'll call it, because I don't exactly know how many weeks it'll be. Um, But it is avoiding a divided table over differing tastes. And again, we're looking at this book, or we're taking a lot of this uh, insights from this book by Dr. Mark Baker, um, Freedom from Religiosity and Judgmentalism. And, uh, and so last week, if you recall, we looked at how um, over the past 500 years or so uh, since the Reformation, the Protestant church has largely understood the book of Galatians through the lens of Martin Luther, who taught that the, the main impetus, the, the main catalyst, the main um, sort of rationale for writing this epistle to begin with was to push against a works-based model of salvation. Uh, insisting, rightly, that salvation is through faith alone. And so there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. And, um, and so we said that, hey, that's, you know, that's a great observation, Marty, but is that really what Paul ha- is so upset about? Is that really um, what he is writing about? That he's trying to correct some errant soteriology. By the way, who remembers what soteriology is a study of? Bill, you're not allowed to say. Who remembers what soteriology is a study of? We looked at that a couple weeks back. Anyone? 
Anyone? Shout it out. Anyone? Salvation, says John. Yes. So really, Paul, are you really just concerned about fixing someone's misperception or misunderstanding of what salvation is? Or is there something deeper here? And last week we said that there is something bigger at play going on. And uh, we looked at the story that Paul shares in, to, the letter, uh, to the letter to the Galatians about this incident that happened at Antioch. Uh, with Peter and how he succumbed to the pressure of these visiting Jewish Christians uh, from Jerusalem who, who almost split the church in Antioch because of their insistence on um, Christians having to follow particular Jewish rules. And as we'll look at this morning, this is a very real threat here in Galatia as well. And this is entirely similar to the situation that we see in Antioch. This is the trajectory that things are moving toward, and it's a big deal. It's a big deal to Paul. It's what's got him so upset, because as we stated at the end of last week's message, this new creation community, this community in which all of us, regardless of our ethnic background, our religious background, our social status, that that new community whose radical love, test, uh, sorry, that radical unity testifies to God's love for all is on the verge of collapsing and resembling the old creation ways. That's what matters here. Paul is like, your testimony to the world is starting to collapse because you're looking like everyone else. This idea of eating at the same table, centered on Jesus, setting aside our religious and our cultural and our social and our ethnic differences, that had never been done before. The very practice of this new kind of unity was a testament to the love of God, to a God that sends his son into the world, to a God who does not favor anyone over anyone else. This was new creation in their midst, and the potential that all of this could be compromised, this is what we said had Paul so upset. So that's the background needed to sort of set the stage for where we're going to continue to move this morning um, as we look into the situation that's unfolding in, in Galatia itself. But before I do that, I, um, I want to look at a paradigm that we explored this spring, uh, this buzz, uh, buzzy, this f- uh, bounded slash fuzzy set paradigm. And this is, again, provided to us through Mark Baker's work, and he kind of adopted it from a, a guy named um, Paul Hebert, who was a cultural anthropologist uh, and a missionary in India. And uh, the, the idea is that these sets, these bounded sets, these fuzzy set uh, models are how we define the church. Um, and so the, and if you missed that from this spring uh, and you're like, what, are, what is he talking about? Don't worry, we're going to talk about it a lot over the next couple of days or a couple of weeks. So you're, you're going to be well enmeshed in this uh, in time. But you and I are most familiar with um, sort of bounded set thinking, Right? And this is the diagram that kind of represents that. Uh, and we define this sort of by the use of characteristics or traits that determine whether a person belongs to a group. And so you have these boundaries or these lines that separate those who hold the community's required characteristics with those who don't. And I say we're most familiar with this because it's the model that I guarantee all of us have been taught to understand this is how we define our community. This is what was given to us growing up, regardless if it was church or not. This is how our society sort of functions. It's all we've sort of known. 
And within the context of churches, bounded churches draw a line that distinguishes, first of all, Christians from non-Christians, right? Um, But you might even say, you know, uh, serious Christians or true Christians from mediocre Christians or the, the more right Christians from the wrong Christians, right? We draw these lines and we say, this is our group over here. Um, so think back to last week's message again about the Jewish Christians visiting Antioch. They, they, they are a good example of what we would call bounded thinking. Peter is pressured to stop eating at the same table with the Gentile Christians because of this sort of bounded um, mentality, bounded group mentality that these visitors hold by, by dividing those who um, are circumcised and those who are not circumcised. That's, that's the line. Or those who observe the Sabbath and those who are like, I have no idea what the Sabbath is. That's the line. Or those who follow these Jewish um, traditions or rituals and those who have no idea about those. There's this line drawn. And the assumption held by those folks at Jewish uh, in Antioch was that those who followed the Sabbath and followed the Jewish rules and, follow, and are circumcised, they're more worthy of God. They're more worthy of the grace that God offers. And those who don't, well, they just need to shape up and get on board, and then they can also be receiving of that grace. And so you can sort of see that with that approach, that mentality of uh, who's in, who's out, who's part of this, who's not, the kind of ugly traits or the ugly characteristics that come out of that are things like self-righteousness, right? Uh, pride. There is a form of gracelessness that, is, um, that comes from within the group toward those outside of the group. And maybe you're familiar with either being on the inside of one of these groups or you've been the recipient of that. And it's not very fun. Um, and so the natural reaction to these sort of negative traits is, you know what? The thing we need to do, and this is what our society has done overall, the thing we need to do is just remove the lines altogether. So just kind of erase those lines, right? And again, this stuff should be hopefully familiar with some of you from this, uh, this spring. We, we, we looked at all this stuff then as well. Um, we'll all get along way better if we just sort of erase the lines, and then we don't have anything to disagree over. Simple, right? That's That's easy. Um, And so we remove everything that differentiates us and create a community of inclusion based on, well, that's kind of where it gets fuzzy, which is why this is called a fuzzy church. Because what do we base it on if we've erased the lines that define us, right? And so we call this model, you know, within churches, we call this a fuzzy church model. And fuzzy churches produce just as much negative fruit, Um. When we remove the lines we're left with, we get what uh, Baker calls whateverism. You know, whatever goes, whatever works, it's fine. But this is a, churches or communities that practice sort of a fuzzy approach, they are very sort of vague, right? They're not very compelling. And they're certainly not life-giving, nor do they lead to transformation. And so, you know, how do you challenge someone or a community of persons to become better, to to think differently, to grow, to repent, or to change if there's no standard, if there's no sort of line for which to call them to or to call them to repent to. Um, When there's no sense of right or wrong to begin with, how do you challenge anyone 
to um, advocate, or how do, you, how do you challenge anyone to move forward? How can you advocate for any sort of ideology, let alone Christianity, if you don't know what those parameters of that faith system are, that ideology are to begin with? And so a fuzzy approach is just as unsustainable of a model as, as the bounded approach. And maybe it sounds you know, beautiful in theory, but ultimately it self-defeats as soon as you put it into practice. And so um, now I want to emphasize two things here, um, two clarifying points that I don't know that I did in the spring. And I, so I, I really want you to pay attention to this. And um, I think that this is important for clarification and for wrapping our heads around this. The first point is this, though bounded and fuzzy groups differ radically, they share the same paradigm about how to define who belongs to a group. Okay? So even though they seem to be sort of on opposite ends of a continuum, and, and they are that, the criteria for judging who is in and who is out of this group, it remains the same. Let me say this again. On the surface, it seems like bounded types are fixated on knowing who's in and who's out, while fuzzy types don't really care. They just have kind of pure, unadulterated tolerance. But in truth, both are part of the same continuum that says, essentially, we will judge you based on your being on our side of the line or based on your uh, level of tolerance that you hold or don't hold. Um, but either way, you are under judgment here. And this is why the entirety of this, pro of this paradigm is problematic to begin with. This is why we would advocate for something outside or something that transcends bounded versus fuzzy. And we'll get to that. Um, and then the second thing is this. The problem is not with having a line that differentiates between things that are acceptable and unacceptable, but with how bounded churches especially use those lines to separate and categorize people in a judgmental way. Now, you hold convictions. We are not advocating for you to erase those convictions or those values or those uh, practices or beliefs or whatever you might hold. That's not what this conversation is about. You know, uh, you have a conviction about God, that the Father is perfectly revealed in the person of Jesus. That's a position. That's a line you hold. You have a conviction about communion, that everyone, regardless of their background of, or status, is welcome to the communion table. Okay, well, that's a position. That's a line. Um, you have a conviction about sexuality. We should celebrate and include any form of love between consenting adults. That's a position. That's a line, right? Um, even tolerance, anyone's view should be accepted as equal. Well, that's a line. That's a position. So hear me say this. Holding a position or a viewpoint is not the problem in and of itself. We all hold values, beliefs, positions, like I said, as a community and, and as individuals. But what we're not trying to do here is to diminish those lines. Instead, we are saying we want to stop using those lines to judge, to exclude, to divide over, or to other others. You know what I mean? To see other people, to categorize people as other so I want to ensure we understood that as we move forward, uh, I want to understand that as this as we move forward, that this is sort of how we understand this. And I hope that provides a little bit of clarity. But the question then is, where do we go from here? Because if bounded and fuzzy um, 
paradigms or models are sort of different sides of the same problematic coin, what's the alternative? What's the solution? How do we propose as a community to move forward in how we understand each other? How do we understand the world out there? How do we get along in spite of our different convictions, in spite of our different values, in spite of our different beliefs about A, B, and C? Well, this is what Galatians is going to teach us over the next couple of weeks. And so rather than spell that out right now, I want to kind of put a pin in it, and I want to uh, carry on with this, and we will get back to exactly what we're going to promote or to, uh, uh, add, um, to kind of encourage here as a community. But for now, let's look at the actual situation in Galatia to see how this bounded thinking and this bounded um, the repercussions of this bounded uh, model are at play. Uh, so throughout the epistle of Galatians, it's six chapters, it's not long. How many people, uh, you don't have to raise your hand, but I'm hoping that some of you are starting to read Galatians kind of on a regular basis over and over again, become familiar. Great, my son Graham is, oh, I believe that for sure. Um, <laughs> uh, so if you are reading through the book of Galatians, you'll notice that there is, uh, there is this group of people that are influencing the Galatians outside of Paul. And this is really who Paul's writing in response to. Um, let me just read this. Uh, chapter 1. This is just a couple of examples. By the way, I had to change the color from red to green in the areas I wanted to emphasize because Rhino was like, it's so jarring. Everyone just gets angry when they see red on there. So we're going to move to green as our uh, emphasis of what we want to... Um, highlight. So he says this, I am astonished you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. That's green, so I want you to live, uh, hold on to that as we carry on. And are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people, so there's someone out here, someone out there who are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. And so there's this external group putting pressure on the Galatians to turn to a different gospel. And as we'll see, they are specifically asking them to do certain things in order to be considered in. Things like circumcision. Things like Sabbath obedience. Things like uh, observing various Jewish rituals. And just a couple quick examples. We see uh, chapter 4. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? These are the, uh, the extra things that are being added to their understanding. Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. Um, I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. Or again, those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. So there, we see this sort of thread all the way through uh, the book of Galatians that Paul is calling them out uh, for being duped into thinking that they had to add extra things, extra practices, extra uh, rituals into their being a follower of Jesus. And, um, and so <clears throat> the implication by these, and, and these are, you know, presumably they're Jewish Christians. We don't really know much about them, but presumably they're Jewish because it does say that they're circumcised. And it says, you know, that they're, 
advocating for all these Jewish practices. I'm assuming they're Jewish people. Um, so these Jewish Christians that are kind of these, these are sort of missionaries that are coming from outside, are coming in and trying to influence these Gentile Galatians and saying, listen, you received that gospel from Paul, but I'm telling you there's more to the story, Right? There's more than just this salvation by your own, by, by faith, by grace. Um, they're, they're essentially saying to these Gentile Christians uh, that they have not gone far enough in their commitment to the gospel, that they're not doing enough, that more is required of them to be properly brought into the fold. So clearly... Paul saw these folks, um, and again, this is Baker's term, as agitators. They are disrupting what Paul had already laid down in the Galatian churches. Indeed, they were definitely that in contrast to the gospel that Paul was putting out. And so, um, at the same time, they were Jewish Christians. And so they would have proclaimed, like Paul, a gospel that salvation was through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. That it was God's grace offered to us. But where they messed up was that they felt they had to do a few more things to kind of bolster or improve upon what Paul had taught. They saw this grace as being limited to only those who are worthy recipients of that grace. And those who are worthy recipients of that grace, according to them, would be Jewish people, right? They're God's chosen people to begin with. So they get first dibs on this beautiful new gospel that Jesus is proclaiming. So we have, proclaimed, we have Paul proclaiming Jesus. And then we have these agitators or these foreign missionaries, whatever, that are trying to influence uh, Galatia. And I don't think they had ill intent. I think they earnestly believe this. I mean, maybe they did. I don't know. But it doesn't really suggest that they would have been doing this maliciously. They earnestly believe that, hey, we want these Galatians to be part of this family of God. And to do that, they need to be circumcised. They need to do this and this and this. So we have Paul, who preached Jesus. Jesus is enough. The cross is enough. Grace is what saves you. Grace that's open to everyone. And then we have these people who said Jesus and circumcision. Jesus and Jewish rituals. Jesus and you have to follow you know, all these traditions within uh, the Torah. This approach assumes that the Galatians in their current state as Gentile Christians were not fully worthy of receiving God's grace. That's what the insinuation is by these Jewish uh, Christian missionaries. Now, grace is unmerited favor, and we don't see Paul adding things onto the gospel in order to make people worthy of it. There are no preconditions or prerequisites like ethnicity or um, religious practices or social status. None of that <clears throat> matters for the gospel. Amen? The major problem with adding anything to this gospel of Jesus other than just Jesus is that we begin to succumb to this bounded way of thinking. It is this A or B, binary, who's in, who's out paradigm. Um, this is what Baker writes, and I think this is interesting. He says, by preaching Jesus and, the message changes from a radical gospel of freedom for all, regardless of status, to a message that draws a line between the worthy and the unworthy. 
anything other than just Jesus, we could rightly call that religion. Now, religion in this sense can be understood as um, sort of human's attempt to win favor with God. Or another way of putting it is a coercion of God, that we can do certain practices, you know, uh, even if we believe the right things, that God will do something for us. It's, religion like this is very, uh, very much enslaving. It enslaves us. Quick example, this is a religion of this form in its most basic form. I read my Bible this morning, so God's going to bless me this afternoon. How many people have thought that? Or I went to church this week, so I know I'm going to have a good week. God's in my favor. He's in my box. He's in my corner, right? I did this. God will do this. It's sort of this uh, divine cause human, or uh, uh, what did I write? I wrote human cause divine effect thing going on here. Um, if I do this, God will do that. That is an enslaving form of religion. And enslavement, and what I mean by that is because when we, it, it becomes sort of a superstitious thing, right? I'm going to, I have to keep going to church every Sunday because my life has been going really good lately. So that must mean God's, God, you know, is trying to bless me and he's blessing me because I'm going to church faithfully. Or I read my Bible every single morning. And uh, when I read my Bible every single morning, I find that my day is, you know, God just kind of like makes things happen for me. That's superstition, friends. And that can be really enslaving to us. We can, we can become kind of bound to that and be like, oh, we have to do that. And we lose sight of the purpose of those disciplines, for instance. The purpose of those disciplines is not the discipline in itself, right? The purpose of those disciplines is to become shaped into the person and character of Jesus. And so... To do anything other than that, for, to have any other motive than that, is to miss the point of the discipline and is to fall into this sort of enslaving religion. And enslavement causes resentment. And this is not rocket science. Resentment leads to division. And this is what is happening in Galatia between the Jewish Christians preaching this sort of religious gospel of, uh, you know, Jesus and, Jesus and all these things, and the Gentile Christians who up until that point had enjoyed the freedom of the gospel that Paul had preached, that Jesus is everything you need. That's it. It's just Jesus. And when you add conditions to being a part of this, to, to this gospel, you end up with religion, and the last thing Jesus wanted was more religion. You can quote me on that. That's a good quote. In fact, we should make a, a video clip this week that we put on our socials that we say the last thing Jesus wanted was more religion. Now, some of you might be like, I, I think I have this like, wait, what? The last thing Jesus wanted was more religion? And others of you might be like, yes, I don't want any more religion. I'm glad I'm done with religion. So let me add this as a caveat in order to provide clarity. And I don't mind having Kip up there. He's, he's a good guy. Uh, but understand, this is not a condition. There is nothing else required to be part of this, to be part of the family of God, to be uh, a recipient of God's grace. There is nothing else required. There are no lines. There are no boundaries. There is no need for division that props one person or one group up over another. None of that. However... Let me say this. What Jesus invites us into should change us. Not out of obligation, 
in order to coerce God into blessing us more or, you know, affecting his action toward us. No, it, it should change us as the Spirit works within us. It should cause a response to this kind of grace. And that response is the fruit that we bear in our lives that Paul writes about in Galatians 2. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's no law against these things. That's what receiving the grace of God should do in our lives. It should lead to that. That response of grace should lead to the renewing of our minds that Paul talks about in Romans 12. That response to grace should lead us to become less me-centered and more other-centered. In other words, that response to grace should cause us to become more and more like the person of Jesus. But none of that is a precondition for being a part of this. And none of that is sufficient to say there are people who are worthy, who get this good, who do really good at this, and then there are people who don't, and therefore they are not to be included. There is no line that, draw, that it should be drawn between the worthy and the unworthy, between the in and the out, period. This is what living in God's grace is, and we are called to that. This is what he said. Again, I read this earlier, but I'm shocked that you're turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. The loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news. This loving mercy of Christ is the impetus to a transformed life in Christ that pushes away any mindset that causes obstacles or that draws lines. Um, this final quote from Baker on how a gospel of Jesus-only grace-dependent perspective will shape us. He says this, excuse me, this includes a radical challenge to turn away from line-drawing judgmentalism, shaming, racism, and prejudices of our culture and society. The agitators lived out a religious. Again, the agitators are those uh, missionaries that came in and tried to influence the Galatians. They lived out a religious and ethnic sense of supremacy that shaped and excluded others. This is not the way of Jesus. Paul boldly challenged them. And then this, having experienced the radical inclusiveness of God's grace, let us welcome and include people regardless, regardless of how the rest of the world, other churches, other communities, how anyone else measures their status and their worth. That's not what we're about. This is what it all comes down to us as, uh, for us as a community. We want to welcome and we want to include people regardless of how others might view their status or their worth. But how do we do that? We need to catch what these missionaries to Galatia missed, that grace is never conditional upon any prerequisite or prior status or worth or value. Jesus alone is the grace, is the gift of grace given to us. And this is what Paul proclaims throughout um, the book of Galatians and what he proclaims to you and I today and what in turn we are to proclaim to one another. It's funny because if you step back 
And think about this message and what we're trying to say here. This is a classic message about salvation by faith alone, isn't it? Or salvation through grace alone. Um, It is a classic message that many of us have heard if we've grown up in the church our whole lives. And yet the message of grace alone in and of itself is the key to transcending the bounded slash fuzzy paradigm that we just can't seem to shake. So why is that? Why do we know in our heads that we are saved by grace alone? But in the day-to-day messiness of our lives, we practice the exact same mentality that these agitators from uh, Jerusalem or from outside of Galatia are practicing and are imposing on the church of Galatia. Why do we do that? And sure, we're not expecting others to be circumcised, I don't think, or to practice any of those Jewish rituals, I'm, I'm hoping. But we have our own list of caveats. We have our own list of criteria that we impose on others before we can accept them as being in and being part of what this is. And I don't know what yours are. Um, I have a guess. Probably some of them are the same as mine. Um, you know, I'm trying to be done with that list, that, those extras. I'm trying to do that. But man, that is hard to shake. Um, but as I've seen them in my life, they, they push people away from me. You know, it's Jesus and they better live a modest lifestyle, not too extravagant with their money, right? It's Jesus and they better have the same understanding of uh, the same sort of correct understanding of sexuality that I have, because if they don't, they're not part of this. It's Jesus and you know, you just got to reject that Piper theology. It's so toxic. It's Jesus and you need to be more generous with your money. It's not quite as generous as what I would have you be. And so I need you to give more money. It's Jesus and, this is the latest one for me, you got to be on board with everything the Jesus Collective is about. Because if you're not, I don't know if we can be in the same community together. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I'm not saying those are necessarily mine. Maybe they are. I don't know. Some of them might be. Um, but we all have these extra things that we add on to the gospel, that we add on to Jesus. And that's what we're trying to get rid of here. That's what we're trying to transcend as we go through this series and as we move forward as a community and as individuals. Because we're not just holding um, others to that standard. We, if you are like me, you probably suck at measuring up to that same standard you hold for everyone else as well. And if you're reflective at all, you can be filled with shame and be like, man, I'm not generous enough. Man, I don't know what I believe about this, or I'm not able to be consistent in this thinking. And shame and, 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 and just sort of that sort of sense of I'm not good enough is just a terrible way to live. And so Jesus is inviting us to something beyond that. But man, that takes work. I, I, I don't pretend to have all the answers. Um, but I will say where I have been able to go past that, there has been real freedom in my life. There's been freedom in my relationships with other people. They don't even know about it. That's on me. I have been able to look at them in a new light of acceptance as part of this, whatever this might be in my mind. Like we said earlier, it doesn't mean there isn't some expected change or transformation in our lives that comes on behalf of receiving God's grace 
his radically inclusive grace. Yes, there will be change. Yes, there will be transformation. Hopefully, you're going to become a generous person. Hopefully, you'll have the right theology. Hopefully, you will understand these issues of our day that are so important, and you will have Jesus' love that uh, sort of undergirds all of that. Hopefully, that's going to come. But none of that is a prerequisite. None of that change is a prerequisite to receiving God's grace to begin with. Amen? We want to be a community that welcomes and includes people regardless of how the rest of the world might deem their status or their worth. And in order for us to do that, we must begin with a hard look inward at the false gospels that we've created, the false gospels that we continue to perpetuate. So, this is the first step for transcending a bounded church mentality. It's the first step that will help us as a community to disagree with one another without othering one another in the process. Let's pray, and I'll invite the band to come on up. Father, we are, um, we are grateful for this epistle to the Galatians. We are grateful for the, just the clarity which Paul proclaims that your grace is radically inclusive. The mercy of Christ that welcomes all of us regardless of status, regardless of religious background, regardless of anything, that you are welcoming us to the table to feast together as one. Um, Father, we, we fail at that every single day. Would you work in our hearts? Would you work in our lives? Would you work in this community to help us to become a new creation, a new creation kind of community, a new humanity that transcends the boundaries, that overlooks the things that divide us, and that allows us to be united in your love? And I pray this in your name. Amen. Um, this morning, as we uh, open or uh, and I invite you to the table, I, I just found this on the internet and I thought, you know what, I think I, this, this would be a lovely way to end our service this morning. Um, I invite you all to stand and uh, I will read this together, or I will read this and you can just listen, I suppose. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. All who come to me shall not hunger, and all who believe in me shall not thirst. With Christians around the world and throughout the centuries, we gather around these symbols of bread and wine, these simple elements that speak of nourishment and that speak of transformation. God, we thank you. Thank you that you are as close to us as breath, that your love is constant and unfailing. We thank you for all that sustains life, and we especially thank you for Jesus Christ, who teaches us how to live out an ethic of justice an ethic of peace, and for the promise of transformation made manifest in this life, or made manifest in Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. This morning we ask you, Father, to bless this bread and this cup, and through this meal, bring us together as the body of Christ, that we may join with you in promoting the well-being of all creation. Amen.
So if you're new to grassroots, the way we do it is we simply take a piece of bread and we dip it in the juice and um, you just kind of come on up as, you're, uh, as you'd like to. Uh, so you're welcome this morning to the table. My faith, I set my hope on Jesus. When the questions come and doubts remain, I set my hope on Jesus. For the deepest wounds that time won't heal, there's a joy that runs still deeper. There's a truth that more than all I feel, I set my hope on Jesus. I set my hope on Jesus, my rock, my only trust, who set his heart upon me first. I set my hope on Jesus. Though I falter in this war with sin, I set my hope on Jesus. When I fail to fight and sink within, I set my hope on Jesus. Though the shame that drowned me in its sea, and I dread the ways of justice, I will cast my life on Calvary. I set my hope on Jesus. I set my hope on Jesus. My rock, my only trust. Who set his heart upon me first? I set my hope on Jesus. Will the world call me to leave my Lord? I set my hope on Jesus, though it offer all its vain rewards. I set my hope on Jesus, though this heart of mine is prone to stray. Give me grace enough to finish till I worship on that final day my hope on Jesus. I set my hope on Jesus, my rock, my only trust, who set his heart upon me first. I set my hope on my hope on Jesus. I set my hope on Jesus. Do you want this one? God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for each one here, and thank you that it is um, by the fruit of your spirit that um, 
it's by your spirit that the fruit is produced in our life, that love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and faithfulness and self-control comes out. And so we submit ourselves to you and ask you through your spirit uh, to draw us more into your love. Amen. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Um, we would love to have you come back next week and be part of Direction Shaping Conversation. It'll be after church, lunch is provided. Please do come and be part. And if you're interested in the conversation that happened before, um, get connected through our newsletter. Uh, the service has ended. Go in peace. <laughs>